Now, to be truthful, I think your pastor has more gray hair than I do. He just shaves it. He shaves it all off on the sides so you can't see it. Well, is the Lord here this morning? How do we know he's here? His word promises he's here. Wherever two or three of you will gather together in my name, there I'll be in the midst of you. So we're in the midst of a gathering unlike any other kind of gathering may go on in this city this week. We're in the presence of the living God who's here to convict of sin, convince of righteousness, whose kindness is here to lead us to repentance. And as Tim just said, I believe that today, if you have ears to hear, this could be one of those times. I look back over my life at some of the messages that framed and formed my life as defining moments. I look back, and I'm praying that this might be a time that 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now, you look back on this service and say, that's when I learned a specific biblical truth that I applied to my life. So thank you for the privilege of being here. You know, Susie and I have worshipped here for 30 years. Every time we've been in the city, when your prayer meetings used to be on Friday evenings, we would slip in the back and sit here and worship here. I knew your founder, David Wilkerson. I pastored in Fort Lauderdale in the 1980s, and uh, that was when the spring break kids came to the beach. There'd be scores of thousands of kids, and I would always have David down and uh, we'd set up a platform and speakers, and we would preach to thousands and thousands of people on the beach and see hundreds come to Christ and baptize there in the Atlantic. Got a lot of respect for Pastor Carter, though I don't know him personally. And your pastor, you know, uh, Tim, I look in your face right now, and right into my mind comes the question of Genesis 41:38, where Pharaoh looked at Joseph and said, Can we find a man? in whom the Spirit of the Lord is. And I look at your pastor, and I thank God you have a pastor in whom dwells the Spirit of the living God. So let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 9. Immediately we remember that's the great chapter where the great Apostle Paul was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. But I came across a particular verse of scripture, devotionally reading this, that captured me some time ago that I want to share with us today. Uh, I'm going to quote a lot of verses in this message that you don't have time to look up. But if you go to our website, oshawkins.com, there's a free book load, a book download of this message where you can get all the verses that are there in them. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, look carefully at what was taking place. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, was being edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now the word that captured me in that morning of devotional reading was the last word in that verse. They were multiplied. Think about it. You know, today we get excited if we see, uh, uh, have a few additions to our churches across the Western world today. This church was being multiplied. Thousands of people were being swept into the kingdom of God. In Acts 2, 3,000 people saved in one day. A few chapters later, 5,000. And on and on, and then it begins to be repeated uh, that they were being multiplied. 
over and over and over, they were being multiplied. They were not just engaging their culture. They, they were seeing whole cities come to faith in Christ. Acts 5 says that they filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of Christ. Think about that. Think about if we could fill this city with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. They did. And they were being multiplied. Acts 17, you know what it says? It says they turned their world upside down. They were being multiplied. They did so much with so little. Think about what we have today to translate the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the lost around the world. Paul never preached with one of these goofy little things around his ear. But they didn't have any amplification. They never met in a beautiful building like this. They never had the ability to be, have the internet and, and to be online all over the world where people were listening to his message and his preaching. They had no Bible study materials. They had no gospel tracts they could give to. The printing press wouldn't even be invented for 1,500 years later. They didn't have devotional books and guides to help them through the day. They didn't have what you have in your hand. The New Testament hadn't even been written in Acts 9 yet. They didn't have radio or television or Christian television or any of the podcasts or any of the ways we have to grow and share the gospel of Jesus Christ today. And yet they were being multiplied. And we're not. So did they have something that somewhere along the line, in the midst of all of our sophistication and education and technology and all the other stuff, did they have something that somewhere along the line we know about but we've forgotten, that if we could ever capture and put into practice in our life like they did, that it could be said of us that we began to turn our world upside down for the gospel. I think they did. And I think the secret is right here in this verse in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Listen to it again. Then the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the... And walking... In the fear of the Lord. Who's doing that today? When's the last time you gave conscious thought of that? You who love the Word of God and study the Word of God and know the power of the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you thought about the fear of God? Who of us in this room or online today could come up here and define what it really means to live in the fear of God? What it means to walk in the fear of of God. You see, we've raised a couple of generations in our world today, by and large, with no moral absolutes, so relativism is rampant in their thinking processes, and they have no fear. That's why what's going on in your city and my city is going on everywhere, people being shot, people going into drugstores and stores and stealing everything, walking out the door, that we've raised a culture with no fear about them, because they have no moral absolutes. And instead of the church engaging the culture and the world, very subtly, when we're not careful, the culture begins to invade the church so that the church wakes up and realizes we too may be living in a no-fear culture where the fear of God has become a forgotten concept in what we do. 
So I have three questions for you today. First, a why question. Why are we living in a no-fear culture? What has happened to us? Secondly, a what question. What does it mean to walk in the fear of God? Does it mean we have to walk around on eggshells afraid of God, that he has this big club of retribution? If we say something wrong or do something wrong, he, something bad's going to happen to us or somebody we love, and so we've got to be careful and walk around. If that's your idea of the fear of God, you have no idea what it really is. A why question, a what question, and then a how question. How can we put a handle on biblical truth today so we can walk out of this room walking in the fear of God that it might be said of us what was said of them? First of all, a why question. Why are we living in a no-fear culture? Could it be that we've lost the sense of the holiness of God? He's a holy God. He's not your good buddy. That means separate. It means different. He is set apart. He is holy. He is so holy, Habakkuk says, he cannot even look on sin. He is a holy God. So we have these couple of generations that are lost to the church. And in an honest quest, what many of us in evangelicalism have done today to try to reach them, try to make the gospel palatable to them, it's a, in a sense, we've sort of taken God off the throne of his holiness and brought him down here on our level so he becomes somebody in a youth rally we can have such little respect for, we can run up and give a high five to, or someone we can refer to as our good buddy, or the man upstairs. Remember Isaiah? He got a glimpse of the holiness of God. It's in your Bible in, in Isaiah 6. You remember what he said? He said, I saw him. And he said, he was high and he was lifted up, Isaiah said. And he said, the train of his robe filled the temple. And that angelic choir, Freddie, in that antiphonal chorus began to sing back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You think Isaiah's first inclination when he saw that was to whip out his iPhone and run up there and get on the throne and take a selfie of him? And get... No. What did he say? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm hanging around a bunch of folks like that because my eyes have seen the king. When you see him in his holiness, you see yourself as you really are. Remember John on Patmos? Over 90, only apostle, didn't meet a martyr's death. Over 90 years of age, exiled out on Patmos. When we read in the Bible, he says, I was on the Isle of Patmos. There's so much behind that. The Roman, the Roman Empire, that's where they dumped the criminals and the mentally insane and all the conquered nations. They emptied out their jails and dumped them out on the Isle of Patmos. And John was placed out there over, over 90 years of age. And God gave him the apocalypse, the unveiling the revelation. And in chapter 1, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ in the glory of his holiness. And what does he say? Does he say, hey, good buddy, you're shining today? No. It says he fell down at his feet like I was a dead man. 
If I had time today, and I don't, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to walk you, starting over in Genesis, I'd like to walk you through every man and woman in the Bible who was used of God, had the anointing of God, whatever terminology you want to use. And you know what you'd find? There was a common thread woven through the lives of every single one of them. And you know what? In one way or another, it says they were walking in the fear of God. All those Old Testament saints. What about Noah? Hebrews 11 Verse 3 says, Noah, moved by fear, built the ark. Remember the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 when Pharaoh declared all those little Hebrew babies be put to death? And those Hebrew midwives, Exodus 1.17 says, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they saved those little baby boys. Moses led the children of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness wanderings and finally got to the eastern shore of the Jordan. And he knew he wasn't going to get to go into the promised land. He was going up on Mount Nebo and die. But he got them over there and he preached a series of sermons to his people before they went into the promised land. They're called the sermons of remembrance. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is in your Bible. And he got over there in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He said to them, I'm going up on Nebo and die. You're going into the land without me. And then he asked a question in Deuteronomy chapter 10, about verse 10, 11, 12. He said, what does the Lord require of you when you go in? Think about that. After 40 years, now they were about to take their promised possession that God had promised them that they could have had if they lived by faith earlier. And he says, what does the Lord require of you as you go? And here's what it was, but to fear him as you go. And Moses goes up on Nebo and dies, and Joshua takes them through the promised land, I mean, through the Jordan River dry shod. And remember what he did when he got on the other side? He went back into the river, and he picked up 12 stones out of the river. They were at a place called Gilgal. And he came and he built an altar with those 12 stones. And he says in Joshua chapter 4, verse 24, when he built that altar, quote, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord was mighty and that they should fear the Lord their God forever. And they began the conquest of the promised land. Then down at the end of his life in Joshua 24, verse 14, he gathers the people together and hear his last words to them. Here's what he says. Now then, he said, I'm leaving. Fear God. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. You know that Proverbs 31 woman? We pastors, we love to parade her out here on Mother's Day. She's so perfect. She does everything. She gets up before sunrise. She does all that she's doing. I mean, she is unbelievable. And all the moms are so guilty by the time they get to lunch, they can't even enjoy their lunch. But if you want to know the secret of her life, read on down in Proverbs 31 till you come to verse 30. And you know what it says? A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Isaiah asked a question in chapter 50, verse 10. He asked, is there any among you who fears the Lord anymore? All those Old Testament saints walked in the fear of the Lord. We turn our Bibles into the Gospels. The story of God himself come and clothing himself in human flesh, the Lord Jesus, and walking among. It's all through the Gospels. In Luke 1, we're introduced to a young teenage girl. Think about this. With the Christ alive and growing in her womb. And she sings a song we call the Magnificat. 
And she sings, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. And she goes on in that song in verse 50 to sing, his mercy is on those who fear him. Zechariah lost his speech in the same chapter. Remember when he got it back, verse 65 says, fear fell upon all of them. In Luke 5, Jesus heals a paralytic. In verse 26, says they were all amazed and filled with fear. In Luke 7, he's passing through a village called Nain. And he sees a funeral procession. And there's a widow walking and dressed in black behind that casket. Bad enough, she's already a widow. Her husband's already... That boy, her boy is in that casket. And Jesus brings him to life. And Luke 7, verse 16 says, Fear fell upon all of them in the village of Nain. And the name of Jesus Christ was glorified. It's all through the Gospels. Then we turn our Bibles into the book of Acts. The dynamic story, the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those early believers like you and me. It's all through the book of Acts. Acts 2, Peter preaches the great Pentecostal sermon. What does it say down in verse 42? 43. Fear fell upon all of them. And many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. In Acts 5, there's a couple in the church causing dissension. They're lying to the church, but worse, they're lying to the Holy Ghost. And remember, Ananias and Sapphira? God struck them dead. And verse 11 says, great fear came upon all the church. Acts 10, Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert who opened the door to heaven to most of us in this room today. And what does he say when he gets up there to Caesarea? He looks at Cornelius and he says, whoever Fears God and works righteousness will be accepted by him. In Acts 19, Peter takes, Paul takes the gospel to the Ephesians. That great metropolitan, cosmopolitan sinner preaches the gospel. And verse 17 says, fear the, the, fell upon all of them and they were amazed. We turn our Bibles into the epistles then. These instructions from Paul and Peter and some others to us in this dispensation of grace in which we live. It's all through these epistles. How could we miss it? In Romans 3, Paul laments a people, he says, who have no fear of God before their eyes anymore. In Romans eleven twenty, he says, stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear the Lord. To the Corinthians, he says, let's perfect holiness in our lives. And we say, yeah, we'd like to do that. And he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, how do we do it? And he says, by walking in the fear of God. In Ephesians, that beautiful chapter 5 where it talks about how we're to live with our husbands and wives and our kids and our employees and our employers at the office and everything, all in the context of verse 21 of Ephesians 5. Submit yourselves, therefore, one to another. We hear that verse all the time. Why do we live off the, leave off the last part of it? It says, submit yourself, therefore, one to another in the fear of the Lord. We're supposed to be living in this environment at home. At the office, at church, everywhere we go, in our relationships, in this environment of the fear of the Lord. It is all through the epistles. And finally, we get to the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, and, and we turn our Bibles to, to, to uh, Revelation chapter 19, that beautiful scene that looks a lot like your church, where around the throne of God, every tongue and every nation and every tribe and every people are all praising the Lord in a beautiful scene in heaven. But it all comes to a halt in verse 5. And the Bible says, a loud voice comes from the throne. And listen to what it says. Praise our God, all you servants who fear him. 
both great and small. That's who's going to be praising around, though. So I have a why question. Why? When all those Old Testament saints, all through the Gospels, all through the book of Acts, all through the epistles instructing us now in this dispensation of grace, and even when we finally get to heaven, is the constant theme of all God's people this idea of walking in the fear of God. Why is it something we've missed? And that many of us have not thought of in months or maybe years. Could it be that we need to recapture a sense of a holy God among us? But there's a what question, secondly. What does it mean to walk in the fear of God? Does it mean we have to walk in constant fright or flight? Have to run from him or be afraid of him that God has this big club of retribution. If we do something wrong or say something wrong, he'll hit us over the head with it. That if that's your idea of the fear of God, you've missed it. The most common Old Testament word means to stand in awe before him with reverence and respect. And the most common New Testament word means to means to, to do so, so much so that it becomes the controlling motivation of your life. The fear of God. Let me tell you what the fear of God is. And remember this. It's the whole crux of the sermon right here. That walking in the fear of God is not the fear that God's going to put his hand of retribution on you. It's the fear that God might take his hand off of you. His hand of anointing, his hand of blessing, his hand of protection, that you live in such an environment that you don't want to go somewhere where you think, if I go there, I wonder if that would cause God to take his hand off of me. Or you don't want to watch something on your computer screen or at some television station or or some movie house. You want to watch something that before you go in there, you say, well, wait a minute, if I go in there and if I watch that, would Would that cause God to take his hand of blessing? Or before you speak about somebody and gossip and slander somebody else's reputation, is that something you ought to stop and think, wait a minute, if I say that, I don't want God to take his hand of blessing off me. This is walking in the fear of God. That when you get to temptation's corner and you're about to turn one way or the other, you ask yourself this. Walking in the fear of God is to be conscious daily of the fact that you don't want God to take his hand off of you. It'll make a difference in where you go, what you say, who you hang with, what you watch. If you could begin to live your life in that environment. This is what Paul said when he said, I fear that when I have preached to others, I might become a castaway. God might take his hand off of me. God might put me up there on the shelf. This is what the prayer of Jabez is about. The prayer of Jabez is not some little key you can use to get rich. What Jabez pray? That your hand might be upon me. Job asked a question. Pastor mentioned it a moment ago. Job chapter 12, verse 9. Look around this beautiful place. Look at what God has given you. Ask yourself that question. Who among us does not know what? That the hand of the Lord has done this. That the hand of God has been on this church. 
and on this people. Who among us can't see that, doesn't know that? Nehemiah heard the report of the broken walls and burned gates back in the city of Jerusalem. And he went to the king and pled for him to be able to go back and be the rebuilder of those broken walls. And he says in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, And the king granted all I ask, for the good hand of the Lord was on me. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Solomon said in Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is like streams of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wants. And John the Baptist was born, and it says in Luke 1, 61, that the hand of God was on him. When the men of Cyprus came to Antioch preaching Jesus, it says in, in Luke eleven twenty one, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, what will happen? If you start living like that, in the environment of the fear of the Lord, not the fear God's going to put his hand on you, but the fear God might remove his blessing and hand from you. What will happen if you start doing that? I'm going to tell you something. God will give you, because you can't do it in yourself. You've tried. God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome your sinful desires. Some of you are here in this, in this room right now watching online. Beset by that secret sin. You go out and come in, you come back so genuinely, so oh God forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. You go right back to it. And you come back, so oh God forgive me, and you go right. If you'll start walking in the fear of God, He will give you supernatural ability to overcome that sinful desire. How do I know that? The Bible says it. Listen to Proverbs 16, verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Did you hear that? You have, a, you have a hard time getting away from that sin that so easily besets you? By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. You start walking in the fear of God, he'll give you supernatural ability to overcome. What about Moses at Sinai in Exodus 20, verse, 10, verse 20? It says, the Lord has come to test you, to see what is in your heart. Listen to this. That his fear might be upon you. Listen to this. So that you might not sin. You start walking in the fear of God, God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome that sinful desire. He promised. And he who keeps his promises, makes his promises, keeps them. I'll tell you something else. He'll give you supernatural wisdom to make right decisions in life. You know, that's what some of us need. There's a difference in wisdom and knowledge. Anybody can get knowledge almost if they stay in the library long enough. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is the ability to take facts and to take situations and make right decisions, discern God's way for you, and make wise decisions in life. Some of you are in a mess you're in today because you hadn't had wisdom. But God will give it to you. You start walking in the fear of the Lord, and he'll give you supernatural wisdom. Say, how do I know? The Bible says it. How many times when you read the book of Proverbs do you read, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of what you don't even get anywhere to wisdom unless you start walking in the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. And what about the psalmist? What he said in Psalm 25 verse 14. I love this verse. 
He said, the secrets of the Lord are with those who fear him. And to them, he'll reveal his covenants. You say, I read the Bible. I don't get, any, I don't get much out of it. Well, no wonder. The secret, Psalm 25, 14, the secrets of the Lord are with those who fear him. And to them, he'll reveal his covenants. You start walking in the fear of God, the Bible will explode with life to you. Somebody here today needs to be delivered from some bondage. Do you know that the Bible says in Psalm 34, uh, verse 7, that the angel of the Lord, that's a pre-incarnate Christ, encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It's the secret to Christian living. It was the secret to the dynamic of that early church who turned their world upside down. They were walking in the fear of God. A why question, a what question. What does it mean not to fear God's going to put his hand on you? The fear that God might take his hand off of you. And finally, let me close briefly with a how question. How can we put a handle on biblical truth we hear today and walk out of this place walking in the fear of God and 10 years from now look back and say, that was a defining moment in my life. Where do we start? Well, we start where we start with everything else in the Christian life. And that's the word of God. I'll take you back to the eastern shore of Jordan. Moses and his last words to the people in Deuteronomy 31. He gathers all the people together. And a hush comes over that multitude of people. And he lifts up the word of God. The, those tablets of stone that God, that God had written with his own finger. And the Bible says in, in, in Deuteronomy 31. He, the Bible says, Deuteronomy 31. About verse 10, 11, 12. That you may hear these words, he said, and learn to fear the Lord. And that your children may hear these words and learn to fear the Lord. As long as you live over there in that land you're about to possess. It's a learned behavior. That's why Paul said in Proverbs 2, my son, if you receive my words, we do. And, we, and treasure up my commandments within you. We do, Lord. Making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver, search for it like hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. You get it from the Word of God. So I want to challenge you in the normal traffic patterns of your daily devotional lives from now on. When you come across this concept, fear of God, fear of the Lord, circle it. The Lord will bring it to your mind every day that you might keep walking in it. So in closing about how to do it, I'd rather try to show you something than tell you something. I grew up in Fort Worth, East Fort Worth. Had a great mom and dad sacrifice so much for me. They were in their, up in their 40s when they were born, been married over 20 years, didn't think they could have children. I'm pretty certain, Pastor, it was not a virgin birth, but it was a miracle just the same, okay? And here I came along. 
My dad worked for the city of Fort Worth all of his life, retired back in the 60s, first in the sewer department, then in the health department. Never made $10,000 a year in his life. They sacrificed so much for me. I, I never played in a ball game, though. I, I didn't look in the stands, and he was there for his baseball season. My glove was as good as anybody's on the team. I don't know how he did it. If it was track season, back then we ran on those cinder tracks with those long spikes, and my spikes were as nice and shiny as anybody's on the team. I never remember my mother one time buying a dress or a blouse or a pair of slacks, any kind of clothing. Twice a year, they'd come this big cardboard parcel from West Texas where my great-aunt Lily lived in Stanford. The clothes she no longer wore, she sent to my mom. She wore, they sacrificed so much for me. I always wanted to be a lawyer. From the time I was a kid, I'd go to, on the bus downtown, sit in the courtroom all day. And when I got to be a junior in high school, it dawned on me, if I was going to go to college and law school, because I, I didn't become a Christian until I was 17, a senior in high school. When I was a junior, it dawned on me if I, I was going to have to Feed, filled myself most of the way, they weren't going to be able to do it. So I quit playing ball and got a job after school and on the weekends, two jobs. And I needed a car. Now, not for social reasons as much as just to go from school to work to work. So we got a, this is the mid-60s, and I got a, I got a car. And it was an older one. Uh, it was a 56 Chevrolet. I wish I still had that 56 Chevrolet. Because if I did... It'd be worth a lot more than the $250. We put $50 hard cold cash down on that, and we financed the other $200 at the Poly State Bank. But when I got that car, my dad put down four rules. I couldn't go anywhere and get in that car and go somewhere. I didn't stop at his chair and tell him where I was going, who I was going with, what I was going to do, and when I was going to be home. used to really burn me off. When my buddies were with me and they didn't have any curfew, and they, I had to stop in my daddy's chair and tell him who I was going with, where I was going, what I was going to do, and when I was going to be home. One Friday night, we'd taken our dates home, and our teenage hangout was a place called Sutter's Barbecue, and it had something that you young people never heard of before, but out in front of it, it had this big awning that stretched all the way across the front, and you'd drive your car up underneath that thing. They had people they, had, they called car hops. And they would come out to your car, and they'd bring out a barbecue sandwich, root beer, whatever, and you'd sit out. Well, one Friday night, we'd taken our dates home. My buddies and I, we were all down here sitting out, standing outside our cars, just talking, drinking a Coke or something. And all of a sudden, I saw my dad drive into Sutter's Barbecue. <laughs> and and he, did, he didn't see me down here. He drove in, drove in way down at that other end. And I thought, well, what's he doing here? He, first of all, I had never seen him. I was 17, 16. I had never seen him eat out in my life. Uh, I'd never seen him out that late unless we went into extra innings in a baseball game sometime. And it, I, I looked at my watch and I said, uh-oh, I know why he's here. I was supposed to have been home 45 minutes ago. Well, he pulled in up down here. He didn't see me. He got out of his car. I saw his lights turn off. About the time he got to the front of his car, he saw me down there. You know how those F-16 fighter pilots lock in on a target <laughs> right before they drop that bomb? I'm thinking, what's he going to do? Is he going to come down here and embarrass me in front of the law? And here's what he did. He stared at me. Boy, our eyes locked. And then he went like this. And then he put it back and he just stared at me. And he got in his car and he drove off. I beat him home. And I'm going to tell you why. I feared my daddy. Now, I was about 17. He was up in his 60s. I didn't fear him physically. If I'd have had to, I could have taken him down. No question about it. You know what I feared? Feared that night. And I feared it till he was 95 and breathed his last breath holding my hand. 
That night, the thing I feared the most was after all he'd sacrificed for me, after all he'd done for me, the thing I feared the most that I would do anything that would dishonor or displease my father. Friend, that's what we're talking about. After all the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, he who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He demonstrated his own love toward you in that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. After all he's done for you, one of the things you ought to fear the most is that you would do anything to dishonor or displease your Savior. And the greatest way you could honor him today would be by coming and putting your faith and trust in Christ alone this morning. Solomon is purported to be the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to tell us about the folly of so many things so many of us think are so important in life. Vanity of vanities, he said. Things like laughter and luxury and liquor and lust and on and on and on. And then he closes the book. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 10, and says this. Now then, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Now that ought to make us perk our ears up. If the wisest man who ever lived said that, especially if he's inspired of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he said. Here it is. Now then, he said, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, he said. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You say, preacher, I want the hand of God on me. Well, I want to tell you something. It was the hand of God that brought you up and brought you through the snow to sit in this place today. That was the hand of God that got you here. Some of you watching online, that, that's the hand of God that caused you to tune in this morning. You say, I want the hand of God on me. That's the hand of God that brought you to this place. Let's bow our hearts together as we pray. Some of you are here this morning and have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're held in a stronghold of pride, just too proud. Maybe a stronghold of procrastination. Maybe some of you are just uh, putting it off. Maybe you're in a stronghold of presumption. You're just presuming because you used to go to church somewhere that you're saved. You know, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel is the fact that Jesus died on a cross, took your sin in his own body so you could take his righteousness, died your death so you could live his life. He was buried. And he rose again, the victorious Christ. And he sends the Holy Spirit this morning to your very heart, to knock at your heart's door, to pull at your heartstrings. Nobody comes to Jesus unless he's drawn. That's the Spirit of God. That's the hand of God calling you to Jesus. It's the hand of God right now that's knocking on your heart. It's the hand of God right now that's telling you today's the day for you to put your faith and trust in Christ. In a moment, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want the privilege of leading you in a prayer 
where you can pray and invite Christ to come into your life, that you say, I want the hand of God on me. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you want to be included in that prayer, all over this room, I ask you to raise your hand right now. Raise it high. That's right. High. All over this room. God bless you. All over this room. Dozens and dozens. In the balcony. I want to be included in that prayer. I want the hand of God on me. I want to know the living Christ. I want to walk out of this room walking in the fear of God. If that's the desire of your heart, then just in your heart, just pray this prayer. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus. Go ahead in your heart. He'll hear you. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Lord, I know it's your hand that brought me here today for this moment. So forgive me of my sin. Lord, I open the door of my life. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. And now as an expression of the fact you believe he's not a liar and will do what he said he would do. Just say, thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life right now. And you know, the Bible says with the heart man believes under righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Father, seal these words in these precious lives today. And may we leave this place today walking in the fear of the Lord. That we might overcome our sin, that we might have your wisdom to live by, that we might find deliverance that can only come through you, Lord Jesus. Seal these words in our heart. We'll praise you for it. And we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this message. And be sure to subscribe so you can receive new messages each week. Visit tsc.nyc for all the latest info on how you can stay connected. Also, don't forget that you can follow us on social media on all major platforms at Times Square Church. Thanks for tuning in today. Have a great week.